You're listening to One Sun, Three Flowers podcast, where we believe in connecting, unifying, and uplifting women. Self-published author, business owner, educator, mother, and poet, Courtney Brookins will help you bloom into your best self and encourage you to make self-care part of your daily practice. She will help you learn and connect with other women. Listen to honest conversations to help further your story. If you're ready to reach the next level of self, you're in the right place. Here's your host, educator, mother, and avocado enthusiast, Courtney Brookins. Hello and welcome to another episode of the One Sun, Three Flowers podcast, Stories of Our Mothers. Today I have joining with me, Lakeisha Williams. Lakeisha, say hello. Hello. Yay. <laughs> so this is a friend, ter- well, let's say work bestie, turn bestie, like this relationship has just evolved so much, but I am, no matter what the title is, I'm super glad to have her on the podcast today, and we're going to discuss with you all the movie Us. <laughs> There's so many different uh, perceptions of the movie, and I don't think there was one right way of viewing it or seeing it I think that's the purpose of art but I am so glad to have you Keisha on here so we can chat it up about this newly released movie yeah I'm excited to be here thanks for having me yes 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 so before we move on why don't you just go ahead and let us know who you are besides how I already claimed you right (laughs) (laughs) um Yeah, so I'm an educator and activist um, who is a Buddhist, um, and I love humans. (laughs) Yes, finger snaps for humanitarianism. I love it. (laughs) I love her, so y'all know I'm going to be finger snapping through everything she says, because this is my boo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, yes, yes. Without further ado, let's just go ahead and jump in and start talking and dissecting this movie. Unpacking it. That's the word we're going to use. We're going to unpack it. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, again, our disclaimer is we're just, these are our perspectives, right? You all may see, you may agree, you may not. However you see it, feel free to leave commentary. But for me, the first thing I want us to talk about, Keisha, is like, I see like there being elements of like feminism and like black womanhood um, in the movie. And I know everybody's like seeing us, us is like us and all this political stuff and we're getting there. But I want to talk about the, the elements of feminism that were existing within the movie. Absolutely. So, yeah. So for me, when I saw, I just have to be honest, when I saw that black mother handcuffed, I saw that kind of as like, this is my perspective. I saw it as like the struggles of black women, particularly black mothers, um, their ability to be able to lead, persevere and strive despite the constraints of household or what's just been fed to them by this American construct. Mm -hmm. So I, I found it very interesting that the entire family, <laughs> out of the entire family, she was the only character handcuffed. And I'm like, that can't be coincidental. It can't be accidental. There has to be a reason why we found this mom in quote unquote chains. Mm-hmm. How did you see, how did you see, um, what did you see the purpose of the handcuffs as being? I I think you're absolutely correct in your analysis of looking at her from the perspective of being sort of like this feminist protagonist character. Um, I think it's important for us to sort of like contextualize like that part of the movie when she is confronted by Red and why she was um, handcuffed. I think that at that particular time, Red knew Um, of her strength and capabilities. I think that um, oftentimes whenever we think of um, the nuclear family and and this idea of having the head of household be a man, I think oftentimes we um, don't take into account the vast amount of, or not even vast, but just the amount of times where women have to kind of like 
be the person to step into a, a person, um, a leadership position. There we go. Starting to wrap my mind around everything. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, we have to take into account, like, there are times when women have to, too, step up to the plate as protectors. And it's not something just attributed to manhood. And so what Adelaide essentially has to do is she has to um, think in terms of her family survival and not necessarily like whittle it down to necessarily gender and, and looking for um, Gabe to sort of be that protector. And, and it absolutely plays on um, the ideas of, you know, feminism being important in, within family dynamics because I think the the character Gabe as well as Adelaide both shared um, a common goal of wanting to survive this ordeal not to mention to ultimately protect their family and so I thought it was interesting that she was also the first character kind of like to be targeted um, mm. by Adelaide but the entire doppelganger um you know, Wilson family that showed up to their uh, beach house. I think that to to be quite honest, I think that this whole idea of chaining her to this, this structure was really about binding her to make the family unit weaker because, yeah. she, was, because she was the strongest one. She was the one that um, seemed to be in tune with um, suspicion, of course, we know why, of, you know, the potential harm that could be, you know, brought upon her family. And so for her, she was trying to really get the other members of her family to understand the severity of the situation and also trying to, like, kind of tug upon that that feminine strength to help right. her persevere through the situation. Yeah, you know, there's a that's a lot um, that you just said there, because in the midst of you speaking, and I don't think I had come to this realization before this, but I'm like, there's some parallelism to everything you said, and also just like the historical Im implications of black women in the family, you think about like black women, we talk about males being the leaders, but black women have had to step in that role. Like even if we go back into slavery, if we go uh, before slavery, we would go back into like the times of like, uh, when we were in spaces of royalty in, in, in African societies, there have been women leading armies. We saw a little bit of that depicted in the film Wakanda, but black women have had a lot of positions of leadership for a long time. So I appreciate us bringing that to the forefront because we always see the man as the leader and as the more strong or dominant person. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's something that we have been fed. I think that's an agenda that's been fed to us for us to see women as incapable uh, of having that power, of having that position and of having that authority. I love when she tells him, no, baby, I'm the leader now. <laughs> right. She had, to, she had to get them together real quick. Right. Real quick. Um, real quick. I think it's important for us to, to you know, kind of like entertain convers conversations about like why we kind of by default look at men as being the leaders of the family and ex having these you know sometimes unrealistic expectations that they will undoubtedly protect us when mm. um in reality i mean not to really stir the pot but i guess i will probably with this comment but you know, <laughs> this stir the pot like, girl it's okay like, <laughs> i'm handing you your spoon <laughs> this, this hierarchical approach to like gender norms is really like a colonial concept like mm. it's just something that is you know definitely something that's African in nature I mean there have been you know countless times where people have talked about the ways in which we see gender norms and how they're sort of enacted in ways that definitely resemble um this this predominantly European you know country that we're settled in and so mm. I think for me, looking at us and looking at the ways that 
Adelaide had to step up and, you know, maintain her composure and yet kind of like get her husband to understand that right now is not the time to literally lean on these, you know, ideas of gender. Let's really like come together as a unit and think about like, how are we going to survive this? How are we going to survive? Absolutely. (laughs) It's no time for any macho business. This is all about survival. Absolutely. This is all about survival. You know, going to Red and then even thinking about her doppelganger, I thought it was kind of crazy besides the handcuffs, the fact that they, like her doppelganger was the only person who could speak. None of the rest of them could, not within that family unit, mm-hmm. not within any of the other ones that were existing within the film. And I also, it also made me think like, hmm, why, why is that possible? Her voice was somewhat muted but it was still able to speak despite everything we eventually learned she had gone through and I think that's intentional I think that um I think that they wanted her to be the only one to be able to speak I know there are going to be people out there who say well we can talk about how she she was switched during childhood but I think it has a prevailing message that's much larger than the switching Oh, yeah, definitely. I think for me, um, probably the two most complex characters of this movie is probably um, Adam, or not, I'm sorry, not Adam, but Abraham and um, Red. And I think Red being probably the most interesting of them all. And mm-hmm. um, what folks need to really like understand is that there is a connection between Red's character and the opening quote about the tunnel. And so when we think about um, the two together and the way that she was able to vocalize um, the need for revolution for these doppelgangers um, in these tunnels, we have to, you know, kind of lean on the historical um, figure of Harriet Tubman. Um, mm, wow. Yeah. Like leading the slaves um, literally to freedom um, by using this very strategic map or this strategic um, route called the Underground Railroad. And I think when we think about Red's character and the fact that she was the only doppelganger, which she really wasn't a doppelganger. She was the real Adelaide that was Mm -hmm. eventually switched, which we know in the fun house. But I think for me, kind of like analyzing her character, Red's character definitely is the embodiment of PTSD and the ways it suffocates um, and hinders one's, you know, humanity. And I think all of the doppelgangers definitely embody that. Um, Red is angry, not just because of the fact that her life was essentially stolen from her, but because she was forced to be in a relationship with a man that she didn't love, as well as to have these children who literally um, she didn't want. And so I think her constantly having to do the work to to actually fight for liberation um, as well as being traumatized by this whole ordeal and being dehumanized and literally brought into these conditions that were not fit for you know normal human beings I mean we also have to take into um, consideration the fact that she is a, a real human being not some government lab experiment gone rogue um Right, literally was a real person yet brought down into these very um you know deplorable conditions that were not um beneficial from her for her i think um yeah red's character is very interesting because she has gone through a great deal of trauma um yet leaned on her human experience so the last human experience that she had to sort of hold on to like a glimmer of hope and literally push towards um making it out of those conditions right and you know what with that being said is the film initially makes us kind of empathetic toward red mm-hmm. and we have like one we're kind of championing her on and rooting for her um even though who we thought was the doppelganger was actually the person who had 
receive, as you said, the trauma and all these negative and adverse experiences. And it makes me kind of feel, again, going back to this area of uh, Black womanhood and feminism, it's the same thing. It's like when we're not understanding or we feel that Black women's anger or frustration or aggression or any manifestation in the way that it shows up and manifests itself and people criticize it, it's not justified. Mm -hmm. Like I posted on my Facebook maybe a few weeks ago and it was like speaking to the reason that black women sometimes or women of color are taught to be loud because they had to learn to speak louder because their voices are never valued or heard. So with that mindset, you know, it's always been criticisms about why are you so loud? Why are you so aggressive? Why are you so passionate? And never looking at the dehumanization or the trauma that that woman has gone through or endured, which, which has caused her to behave that way. We're, we, in this movie, we were really, I feel, and I'm sure you'll correct me if you think we're, I'm wrong, but I feel we were cheering for the wrong woman. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I mean, first, we have to acknowledge that we live in a country that literally criminalizes people that are poor and, you know, come from grim working class conditions, like, or poverty, period. Um, I think that we are sort of informed on who we should be rooting for. And so we've been sort of like, and I think that's the brilliance of Jordan Peele in this movie is like not necessarily trying to inform us on who we should be rooting for. And I think that's the reason why the entire time we are under this impression that the real Adelaide is, of course, the one that has, you know, been able to operate in this upper middle class, you know, black family where they have access to all of these different privileges. And even though they don't have as much as their white counterparts, the fact that they don't have to literally struggle and live in utter squalor is very telling of their experience in America. And mm -hmm. so I think that it's important for us to like understand the ways in which we are sometimes informed um, to criminalize in other people who may not be popular to people in, um, in, in very high places. I'll just say that. I don't want to sound too revolutionary. Listen, you can go ahead, uh, <laughs> you can lead the revolution. I think that's <laughs> I'm here for it. Like. Tribe, we received so much positive encouragement about our podcast, and a lot of you have asked how you can help support it. One of the easiest ways to show your appreciation is to press pause and take a second to write a review about the benefit of this content. And while you're there, make sure you click subscribe so that every time a new show drops, you're the first to know about it. You're not going to get resistance from me. <laughs> I think that actually is the perfect segue. I know we just spent some time talking about black feminism, I mean, black womanhood and feminism, but I think that's the perfect segue for us to start analyzing some elements of this movie as it relates to like classism, classism and privilege, because there's a ton of that in there that was underlying. And I think some people might say very overtly put into the film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So one way <laughs> that I see uh, maybe there being some pieces of classism existent are with the people who are actually living on top and then the doppelgangers. Mm -hmm. like, <laughs> the people on top receiving all the privileges and the people on the bottom having to mimic or mirror a lot of their actions, but receiving no attention, no credit, no opportunity to speak, no voice, no, no access to the real world, even though that they really wouldn't, according to this movie, really wouldn't fully exist without having this duality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think everything you just said is like right on the money. It's important um, for us. Like, first of all, I even want to go back to the beginning of the movie. And when we talk about accessibility, like us was riddled 
with like 80s references, not limited to Ronald Reagan and his Mm -hmm. humanitarian campaigns around, you know, Hands Across America. um, Right. As it relates to his very um, (laughs) just, I, I guess what I can say is that Reagan symbolizes the performative delusion that we have all been under when it comes to politicians and the pseudo promises that they tend to bring forth um when we talk about the issues of class i mean we're talking about the young adelaide having um you know the opportunity to be sort of safeguarded and and shielded from the crack epidemic in 86 you know that that literally was plaguing you know the majority of black impoverished spaces and you know here she is having access to therapy Right. Black folks in 86 really weren't going to therapy, especially those who were impoverished. Black folks in 2019 (laughs) ain't really going to therapy. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just be honest, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think this 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 movie begs for us to be honest about those types of, you know, classes issues. And so when we talked about, for example, you know her being able to kind of sit in front of this television set and sort of romanticize this idea of humanitarian um, sort of this humanitarian display of care and love for humans when in reality this this president, this person who was behind the entire campaign was really wreaking havoc in Latin American spaces like you know um, God it's, I'm, I don't want to be all over the place but I guess like just thinking about money (laughs) (laughs) just thinking about reagan and what he represented in the 80s in terms of you know um kind of you know focusing in on um the war on drugs and criminalizing um black and brown folks in impoverished spaces as well as like connecting that to the experiences of those black people who were um oblivious to sort of the conditions that the vast majority of us went through. I mean, we're talking about the the post, you know, civil rights movement, the post Panther movement, uh, black liberation right. movement, and the right. ways that so many black people dealt with significant harm, PTSD and, and poverty, rampant poverty. Um, yet this black family had a freaking beach house in <laughs> California. Right. Where they had access to, you know, and their their concern is if they can have a functional boat that mirrors their daggone neighbors. Like the <laughs> idea of class is is definitely there, and I think for me, kind of putting everything into perspective, kind of looking at um, how the Adelaide, the the real Adelaide, felt that she had been robbed, yet <clears throat> literally traumatized and not continuing to have those privileges that are afforded to those who are you know upper working class folks or people that can afford it in the 80s you know what I'm saying like it's just so many instances of class that kind of like pop up there like even in terms of looking at um the white homeless guy with the Jeremiah eleven eleven sign and mm-hmm. juxtaposing him being on the boardwalk holding a sign, literally being invisible as all of these other, you know, primarily white folks walk past him as if he doesn't even exist. Um, Right. Kind of engaging in these antics that literally make other people invisible that don't have, you know, it's it's definitely a symbol of the have and the have nots. Yeah. But it's definitely of the half and the half nights and it's funny that you highlight a lot of the like I, I, you know most people probably would have expected you to highlight the examples of like classism and privilege as it relates to white America um, because I think those are more overt and obvious but calling out that this black girl was able to have therapy that her family wasn't affected like you said by the crack cocaine epidemic the fact that she had a two-parent household because we also know on the heels of uh, crack cocaine the crack cocaine uh, epidemic is also the penal system. And so the fact that her father was not in prison, but that he was actually able to be physically present to take her to a carnival. Right. <laughs> it shows a lot of uh, privilege just in those opportunities as well. Absolutely. And I think that's 
a part of the, the the social conditioning that we as black folks in America have like been sort of programmed to engage in. Like this idea of opportunities being extended to everybody. And those of us that have made it out, made it out because we wanted it bad enough or that we pulled, we pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like we don't really put into perspective the ways that these sort of class antagonisms that Jordan sort of puts into this movie is real life. Um, Mm -hmm. I think everything you just said about her father, even um, not being um, a casualty to the crack epidemic that was plaguing, you know, black and Brown communities during that particular time is very telling of the privilege. Um, And I think even looking at um, older Adelaide, and the fact that her children, and I'm gonna, and this is actually something I can like juxtapose with her children's doppelgangers, mm-hmm. like, or just with the entire family, even with right. down to Gabe. Like these, he's a college educated black guy who had an opportunity to not only go to Howard, but I'm assuming to probably some prestigious uh, PWI and. He's definitely, kind of he definitely has a graduate degree. We just <laughs> know that. You don't know that, but you know that. <laughs> you know it. You know it. <laughs> and that's no shade on Howard. Aggie pride. You know I'm an Aggie all day, but. Listen, you know. it's HBCU all through here. I started off at Fisk, so we, we're about to, let's not get to repping. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um. The Wilsons sort of demonstrate how Black folks can be complicit in the marginalizing of like certain communities, albeit being like a small contribution. So we mm. we look at them having a freaking beach house on the beach. Um, this is something literally that's passed down from Adelaide's parents down to Adelaide and her family, and I'm assuming right. that they'll have enough money to pay taxes and to be able to afford the upkeep of this place and then it'll be passed down to probably her kids and right. the, the privilege of being able to not take advantage of gifts and talents that you actually naturally have. I think looking back at um, Adelaide's daughter and the fact that she was a talented track runner, yet she had other options to turn to when she right. became disinterested in it, whereas her doppelganger, that's all she had. Mm. was this ability to run and to be able to use that ability to try to become visible but it was definitely difficult for her to become visible you know become visible because she was in the underclass right um i just yeah i quickly wanted to say like even like juxtaposing gabe and um and and abraham I think that it's important in looking at like conditions, right? And looking at what black privilege looks like. I think that Gabe symbolizes what black men can be when they're given opportunities, when they're actually given the opportunity and a chance to have a voice. Um, Right. Adam symbolizes like black men that have come from like grim conditions. Um, Adam's only way of self-expression of course is through like brutal violence um, he right. can't vocalize his pain in a productive and humanizing way because his humanity has never been valid um, mm. and so for him he's emotionally you know removed from Gabe experiencing any type of pain and you know we could talk about the countless amount of you know black men that live in these low socioeconomic conditions that have been totally removed from their humanity and it's nothing for them to take a life. And so, yeah, I think just kind of juxtaposing Gabe and, and, you know, Abraham is, is very telling of the class construct in this movie as well. And you know what? (laughs) That leaves us in our... One Sun, Three Flowers is a one-stop shop for the entire family. Our mother-daughter clothing brand promotes self-care, unity, and wellness for the entire tribe through tees and sweatshirts. 
We created the One Sun, Three Flowers shop a year ago when we challenged ourselves to create clothing that promoted self-care, self-love, and helped you connect with your highest self and your families. Head to the One Sun, Three Flowers dot myshopify.com and save yourself 10% when you use the code podcast 2019 that's one sun the number three flowers dot myshopify.com enjoy flower tribe into our third section let's go ahead and, and let's go ahead and talk about that some more black boy joy versus toxic masculinity because we do see that within them i love that you bring that up because that's exactly how i saw it keisha i'm like hmm we have gabe and abraham exactly being um two opposing characters one's full of joy and light and easygoing and and, and it has fully assimilated and then the other one like you said is angry I mean he grunts and he growls and he's strong and he's dominant and he's aggressive and it made me think I'm like I saw the two men as one who has adapted and accepted this white world Mm -hmm. Um, and so (laughs) he's liberated himself through that and the other one exactly as you said who has who has walked in the anger and the discomfort and the frustration of being a black man in America. And so America prefers the Howard, the hoodie in the boat, but mm-hmm. they don't deal with the animal for lack of a better word. And I use that carefully black men. I'm here with you. I'm not describing you as a, a animal, but I'm describing what America has tried to condition uh, black men into being. Mm-hmm. They've tried to condition them into being this angry uh, monster. What do my students say? Savage. And I'm like, they want you to be that. Mm-hmm. Because they have a way to further their agenda and to see you in a light that they wanted to create you, create you into being. I mean, this this construct, it has predates everybody's existence here. America has been feeding into that image since they dragged us over here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's just, and that, that is very interesting. I think like just kind of analyzing like the males in this movie um, is interesting. I think, for example, looking at um, Abraham's, not Abraham, sorry, I'm getting kind of mixed up, but we all at- do. <laughs> looking at Gabe's um, relationship to the, the white guy Josh like the measure of a man is this ruling class white guy who has access to money and prestige you know um, and that's something that black feminists especially black radical feminists constantly sort of bring to the forefront in terms of argument about you know the brutalizing ways that black men have had to feel as if they have to be equal to um, that of white men, especially mm. class white men, to be considered a man. Right. Like, nothing that Gabe does in this particular movie before All Hell Broke Loose was good enough because he hadn't reached the status of his white friend Josh. Mm. And Josh because having access to <laughs> all of these, you know, speed boats and these mm-hmm. houses and, you know, him having just this access and I think that's very telling because the doppelgangers clearly understand that for Josh and his family they have been totally um, devoid of understanding humanity from the concept of like looking at class and looking at this underclass of people who are struggling whereas I feel that it was very interesting how like red and um, Abraham and the kids sort of like pulled up a seat and actually gave Adelaide and her family an opportunity to run and make it a sport to see, <laughs> you know, if they could first get away. But I thought it was also interesting because they at least gave them an opportunity to talk. Right. They still gave them a voice. Absolutely. But I, uh, further than that, just kind of going back to um, Abraham, I think it's interesting that Abraham as a character is everything that 
Gabe wasn't because mm. of the component of access as well as opportunity. Like him not ever having to literally engage with a person who is totally oblivious to being a person of color in America, let alone somebody that is really struggling to like climb up the ladder. Like mm. for him being in those conditions, it's sort of like, excuse me, really like um, put him into this position where he didn't even know what this idea of manhood was because literally he didn't have a model or the model of, of this white ruling class white guy to kind of look up to. Yeah, you're right. But you know, I think there's a lot of limitations with him assimilating into this environment because I have to admit, I'm like, wow, why is he portrayed as being, uh, again, before you listeners jump on me, I'm going to say it. Why is he portrayed as being so weak and docile? Like when that back got snatched, I'm like, I'm going to need you to tap into another element of yourself. Like, how did he snatch that bed out your hand? Like, <laughs> listen, I'm going to need you to throw that boat life to the side and rise up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I was a little disappointed in his ability. I kind of, he hadn't assimilated so much. He wasn't able to switch it up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like he wasn't able to tap back in to who he was before America told him who he should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that uh, what you were saying is very interesting, but I think too, we can also kind of look at it from the perspective of, you know, expectation. Like, what do we expect all black men to sort of rise to the occasion when there's a threat and sort of be able to physically defend themselves and their families? Like, it okay, could, it could have been that this brother wasn't raised in the hood and has never had a fight and mm. literally didn't know how to protect himself, and that could okay. also go to. Um, the doppelganger um, Adelaide and the struggle that she had in those conditions in the tunnel maybe she learned how to defend herself or how to fight um, okay. especially fighting those conditions but mm -hmm. not necessarily being privy to how to fight physically not to mention um, never having to be confronted by confrontations even though I'm sure he probably has he's black in America but um you know, I, I guess I just kind or of think about respond to confrontation in a different way, considering his assimilation. I mean, you're bringing some great points up here, Keisha. Yeah, definitely. I think um, that assimilation piece is very telling of his class privilege, as well as like maybe the the ways that he um, was an anomaly when it comes to like being safeguarded from having to kind of rely on this idea of toxic masculinity to save his own life let alone somebody else like right know, oftentimes when people grow up especially young black boys in the hood they sort of learn to adapt to this toxic way of being a boy or being a man based mm -hmm. on people literally zapping their humanity from them because mm -hmm. they have to almost be sort of like a sacrificial lamb of sorts for the right. or for all of the women in their families in order to be valid. Right. Right. You know, that's a very, that's a very profound perspective. And I appreciate you bringing it to the table because absolutely there are, so I'm sure there's a lot of truth to, uh, truth to what you're saying. I just knew I saw it. me. You ain't snatching that bad on my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can tell you this today. It's going to go down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I ain't going Like, I was, like, my petty probably was on 100. Because I'm like, I know you at least got into a fight at Howard in one of them dorm rooms. Listen, <laughs> like, can we talk about it? Somebody tried something, okay? Somebody <laughs> tried something. So let's talk about, I know there there is, um, People are saying that there's some parallel between um, the movie Get Out mm -hmm. and Us. Mm -hmm. So did you see any uh, overlap? I can say for my one.
noticed was black folks in both films <laughs> uh, able to have their strength and their privilege exemplified through the, their ability to run. And I'm like, mm, is this intentional or is this by coincidence? I, mm -hmm. I'm going to go with the, the first option. I think it's intentional that Jordan Peele used running as a metaphor. I definitely saw those two things as an overlap um, between Get Out and Us. Um, and I know we can talk about maybe like the fact that Blacks are portrayal, portrayed through their athletic abil abilities, like athleticism being uh, Blacks way of being able to escape from their community or their conditions, literally their athletic ability being their way out, their way of mm -hmm. get out of the hood or the conditions that they're, or they're in or their ticket to college or to uh, a different class. So I definitely saw that as a, an overlap. Um, what, what things did you notice between the movie Get Out and Us? I think in addition to the things that you just noted, um, some of the things that I found that were very um, important in terms of relating it to Get Out, for one, was the programming process that um, went into, first of all, like taking the actual shell or the bodies of um, the young Black men and women in Get Out to that of like the government project of creating these doppelgangers mm -hmm. to essentially potentially um, you know sort of inform and, and from what I from what I'm gathering even like control hum, you know humanity or humans the real humans and so I think that's an obvious connection um, as well as looking at like the bunnies and the, okay. the um, connection to using the bunnies as sort of like these uh, lab rats or these um, sort of like, you know what I'm saying, um, testing um, subjects. And they essentially did that with the doppelgangers as well. And that's connecting back to Get Out when, you know, they actually perform these surgical procedures to remove the brains of, you know, these young black men and women and then kind of implanted these you know, ruling class white folks who had access to money, who, you know, wanted to be able to transform into another body because they didn't want to, like, die. Uh. Um, and so, yeah, that's the obvious one. But the other thing I think, too, is, like, the idea of being in a sunken place. Uh. Not necessarily um, being able to, as the sign said in, uh, in us, find yourself. Like, what is yourself when you were in this sunken place and you've literally um, not been really able to be yourself? Right. Um, that was another thing I thought that was super important to really talk about, too, in relation to Get Out is this idea of finding yourself. Like, what is yourself when you're in this sunken place or when you have been um, the product of an experiment going rogue? Mm. Yeah. That those are some excellent uh, observations of the movie, Jude. I think that we could go into a whole nother discussion on mental health with that and the importance of being able to dissect and, and get to the root of some of the issues that we have within ourselves or within our, our community related to like just trauma and uh, mental warfare. Right. Yeah. Um, I noticed, though, also something, I, well, a difference, I would say, between the two is um, in Us, it was very much Black characters versus white or not necessarily versus, but there, most of the characters were Black or white. There, weren't, there wasn't really any other diversity. But in Get Out, they did make it a point to kind of uh, insert an Asian character. And mm -hmm. we can talk about what his purpose was in the film. But I found it interesting that they didn't make the same point to insert a, an Asian or even a Latina or Latino into the, uh, into the movie. It was just all like black and white characters. Right. Yeah. Um, 
with that being said, Jordan Peele has been in the forefront of a lot of conversations because of his movie, um, Get Out and Us. Um, <clears throat> he's receiving some criticism. Two things that I've heard that people have been saying, and I'm, I'm interested if you have any perspective, perspective on either. If not, it is what it is. But one, he's being called out for saying that he's only going to cast Black folks as his main characters in his current or future films. And then two, people say he's creating these productions that are so quote-unquote woke, but he's in partnership with a white wife. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm wondering, do you have any thought on either of those comments that are being made about Jordan Peele? Um, I think, I think him coming out in a very controversial manner about um, only casting black people, of course, is like rub folk the wrong way. Because whenever we talk about a person as talented as Jordan, you know, people definitely always want to like see him as the next Alfred Hitch Hitchcock and you know want to like make it seem as if like okay you need to cast you know white you know people so that they're more digestible for ho Hollywood's sake mm -hmm. so of course you know that 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 proverbial reaction of oh you know you're making this a race thing when in reality we know everything in America is damn near a, a race thing. Um, <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I think, you know, it, it is definitely interesting. And I had the conversation with you and somebody else the other day about the way that um, he constructed the movie in terms of only making this like a, a situation that's reflective of how we socially see race in America. Like usually when we talk about America, we see America being attached to whiteness or Eurocentricity. Um, and then there's us. Mm. So it's almost as if we're a visitor on a land that we were, you know, drugged to and um, forced to cultivate and create these great opportunities and, and these great monuments that we know as America, which we all know is a delusion in the first place. But right. Um, right. I think it's interesting that this black-white binary was brought out in this film, but I think it was very intentional. I think that it demonstrates that even within um, this, idea, this idea of the ruling class um, that is primarily saturated by white folks, there is a small percentage of ruling class black people that are complicit in the damaging effects of, um, of exploitation in class. Mm -hmm. Um and so this particular family, the Wilsons, they sort of symbolize that, you know, very small percentage of black people who have access to this, you know, abundance of wealth, even though in the movie, they don't necessarily have access to it, but they are definitely not representative of the, the whole experience of black people in America. Right. And so I think it's very strategic that he put that in there. Um, it's, as far as Jordan having a white partner, um, <laughs> I don't, I mean, she could be woke. I mean, I <laughs> she may not be, you know, like barbecue Becky calling, you know. Oh, no, I'm so sick of her memes. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, I'm much more concerned with us wrestling with these concepts of like, um, Perform performative delusions and how we've been sort of like colonized even as black people in America to sort of like focus more so on like interracial relationships as opposed to the ways that our our people are still suffering right right and how some of us have been selected to sort of kind of play as like puppets mm. to sort of keep the masses complicit in different behaviors and so I think um with Jordan's white wife, um, I just hope that she would be very understanding of um, the conditions that the vast majority of Black people have endured or, or essentially are still enduring. But um, yeah, like I guess I don't want to say too much beyond that because I don't want to make it seem like I ain't for this brother because he got a white wife. Right. 
And see, <laughs> you know, I, I love how you frame that, Keisha, because if we get too much caught up in that conversation, then they'll definitely take away from the way that he is doing some very intentional work through what he's producing. Right. Yeah, yeah, that definitely. we're going to use the word agenda again. That too is an agenda. So I, I thank you for carefully framing that. And um, I also just thank you for being on here. I mean, this was such a dope conversation. And I couldn't think of anybody else I'd rather do it with. Oh, <laughs> it makes me so happy. I think just one more thing before we hang up. I wanted to also like encourage people to see this movie again, because I think that um, not just this particular conversation, but there have been other, you know, people kind of putting out commentary or think pieces about the film. But I think the film is just so um, just dope. It's just like this is a, a masterpiece. And I think that it's probably 10 times better than Get Out. And I know a lot of people like Get Out because of the oh, fact that everything beyond you. Yeah, <laughs> Everybody like Get Out because it was kind of like he gave you the eggs, you know what I'm saying? Like up front, you didn't have to go like searching for them and you know, go on an Easter egg hunt, he gave them to you. <laughs> uh, but you know, this movie I think is, is definitely more subtle and some things that you have to really pay attention to. Um, one of the things I would try to get people to really think about is like the ways that he references a lot of like stuff that happened in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and the brilliance behind like the cinematic classics that he has like really taken like scenes from and like dropped them in this movie like The Shining okay. um, you know the whole idea of like Alice in Wonderland the movie The Lost Boys and looking at the, the glove and the scissors um, in reference to Thriller and Freddy Krueger wow um, yeah the costume design um, alone is like super it's just super amazing and I think that we should definitely um, go back and see this movie and then just kind of look at these little things that you may not have paid attention before I think um, us informs the ways that we have been socialized to understand people who are seen as being like deserving of heroic merits and achievements versus people who we don't feel like make any like societal contributions because they're sort of like you know afterthoughts or you know meaningless ornaments Wow. Wow. Well, with that being said, I think that we all need to go take a second look at <laughs> us. Doesn't help or doesn't hurt supporting uh, a black producer one more time. And then also it might just give us the room to come back for a part two. What do you say about that, Keisha? <laughs> yeah, I would love to come back on and have another discussion because um, I'm sure it'll be more things that'll come out of watching it a second time absolutely well thank you so much for joining this podcast i'm so happy we were able to do this together you know i love you (laughs) (laughs) it's mutual And all our listeners, thank you for tuning in for another episode. We encourage you not only to tune in, share it with a friend, but also make sure that you go ahead and see the film one more time after listening to this podcast. Bye for now. And until next time, remember to bloom into your best self. Thanks for listening to the One Sun, Three Flowers podcast. Check out show notes for this episode and all past episodes at www.onesun3flowers.com. If you love the show, share it with a friend. We want to connect with your tribe. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. And remember to bloom into your best self.